I'm all twisted. Give me a sec. Here we go. Morning. How are we all doing? This morning I want to delve into a big topic, and I probably caught the first service out a bit, but I want to talk about the resurrection, the resurrection life. And it's something I'm particularly um, passionate about, and not just because it's the lead-up to Easter, the week before Easter, but because this is at the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel message is life after death. It is everlasting life. It's the message of Jesus, the message of Christianity, the reason we preach, and this is the reason we preach, is an invitation for life after death, for eternal life. You know, the message of Christianity is not that Jesus wants to make you successful, or that he wants to give you purpose, or that he wants to just make you healthy or wealthy. It's not that Jesus wants to um, just make you happy in life. He does, but that's not what it's about. We're not on a sports field, there's no shelves or benches, we're not running around trying to kick goals for Jesus, that's not the message. It's not even that Jesus wants to make you a better person, to make you more good than you are. The message of Christianity is that the Lord offers you eternal life. Forgiveness of sins, everlasting life in heaven. It's about the life to come. It's about believing in Jesus as Lord and in His everlasting kingdom, which is everlasting peace and joy and an adventure that is beyond anything we can imagine. The message of Christianity is about the resurrection, is about eternal life. But you see, the sad thing is that in our postmodern age and in our current culture and in what is often referred to as progressive Christianity, the idea of the resurrection, the idea of life after death has been pushed to the side. Even within churches and church communities, the idea of eternal life has been pushed to the side in favour of more self-centred messages about Jesus just wanting to bless you in this life. It's all about the here and now. And because of this kind of thinking, there's actually a growing number of churches that deny some of the most basic aspects of the Christian gospel. They, they deny the virgin birth, deny Christ's sinless life, they even deny life after death. There's an American bishop, his name's John Shelby Spong, he's a bit well known, you probably haven't heard of him, but he wrote a book, it's called A New Christianity for a New World. And in this book he tries to say that some of the, the basic Christian doctrines need to be reformulated. We need to have a, a new reformation. So here's this guy, he's had 30 years in pastoral ministry, and in this book he says this, I do not believe that Jesus was born by the miracle of the virgin birth, nor do I believe that virgin births happen anywhere except in mythology. I do not believe that angels sang to hillside shepherds to announce his birth, or that they fled to Egypt to escape the wrath of King Herod. Here's the cruncher. He says, I do not believe that the events Christians celebrate at Easter was the literal resurrection of the three days dead body of Jesus. This comes from a, a pastoral minister. And if you think that's, that's not the norm, this is some, some out there kind of guy. There was a survey conducted in Britain, 2017, that said that a quarter of people who describe themselves as Christians do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. 25% of Christians. They said that only 57% of active Christians, so these are Christians who attend a regular service, only 57% believe in the, in the Word of God, uh, believe in the Bible as uh, word for word the Word of God. It said that 3 in 10 Christians surveyed, about 31%, said they did not believe in life after death. And if you think 
Okay, that's Britain. That's America. They're all a bit different. We're better here in Australia. In Australia, in, in the Sydney Morning Herald 2009, it says that only 53% of Australians believe in life after death. And another research organisation, NCLS, they said that about 62% of professing Christians in Australia believe in life after death. What that means is about 38% of Christians in Australia do not believe in life after death. It's crazy. It's a crazy notion. And, okay, while the majority of Christians do believe, there's a large number that don't. And I suppose you could add to that, some of these Christians might believe as, in the resurrection as something that happened, that life and death, you know, life after death as a principle, but that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really impact their life now. It doesn't really matter. This morning, what I want to show you is that not only is there a life after death, not only is there a resurrection, but that it matters. But that the resurrection is so crucial to our Christian life that the resurrection matters. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 58. It's a big section. I want to try and sort of break it up. But it starts with this. He begins, verse 35, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? You see, the idea of the resurrection, this, this notion of life after death, this struggle with it, it's not a new thing. Even in Paul's day, he wrote this letter, 54, 55 AD. We're talking like two decades after the actual events of Jesus' death and resurrection. There would have been people within that church who actually saw Jesus resurrected. Yeah. And they're questioning it. It's a question that's plagued uh, Christians throughout history. How are the dead raised? John Calvin, in his commentary on Corinthians, he says this, and I thought this was quite a good way to think of it. He says, For who but God alone could persuade us that bodies which are now liable to corruption will, after having rotted away, or after they have been consumed by fire, or torn in pieces by wild beasts, will not merely be restored entire, but in a greatly better condition. Do not all our apprehensions of things straightaway reject this, as a thing too fabulous, nay, most absurd. I'm sure we can relate to that. The idea that, that something that has died and been consumed by fire or something that ripped apart can be raised to life and in a better, greater form. But here's the thing, we have the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul's already proven this in, in the preceding um, verses. In verse 5 to 11, he, he lists all those that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. You know, when God raised Jesus from the dead, it wasn't in secret. It wasn't something done in the shadows somewhere. But he appeared to, I think it was first Peter, then to the 12 disciples, then to 500 people, then again to James, the other apostles, and then last of all to Paul. And he doesn't even mention the women in that as well, who were seen, Mary and, and so on. But it's clearly something that has been grappling people forever. But these witnesses, they spoke with Jesus. They interacted with him. They, they, they ate with him. They talked with him. They touched him. They spent time with him. So when we come to verse 35, Paul's already proven that Christ has been raised. But this section is not about winning that argument. Now he wants to, to drive it home. He wants to press the point home on why the resurrection matters. And it matters. Because it is our ultimate hope. He presses this point by dealing with this question how are the dead raised? 
I wonder this morning if someone came up to you and, and asked you that question, what, what would you say? Is that something you could even answer? I would, I would in struggle. But Paul answers this question in three movements. And this morning I'm going to try and follow those sort of three movements and I've got three headings and there will be some slides and stuff to follow. But the three headings are, the first thing it addresses is our anthropology. It addresses our value in human life. The second thing it addresses is our soteriology. There's some big words this morning, but soteriology. It addresses our new life in Christ. And then lastly, it addresses our missiology. It addresses our victorious life we now have. Let me get into it. The first one, we're talking about our anthropology. We're talking about human life. We're talking about the value of human life. Paul says this, verse 36 to 38. He says, How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. What, what strikes me here is that Paul has no compassion for the Corinthian believers. He has no mercy. He doesn't say, I get it, life after death, resurrection, these are big topics, let's talk about this, let's, let's, let's you know, talk it out. No, he says, you fools, don't you get it? You foolish person. And I don't think he's insulting them just because he feels like it. I don't think he's actually a jerk. I think he's actually rebuking their unbelief because they should know better. He's already shown the evidence of the resurrection in the Word of God. He's shown it by eyewitness accounts. He's shown it by apostolic teaching. But now he says, you also have the evidence in general revelation. You have the evidence of the resurrection written into nature. God has shown you not just through his word, but through the things you see, the things you see even in nature, in creation. God has written into nature the principles of the resurrection, so that without death and burial, there is no new life. Jesus says it like this in John 12. He says, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Actually, at home over the last few years, we've been trying a bit of gardening. We've currently got some cucumbers and strawberries and uh, the different herbs growing. We've got some chilies and capsicums and, and a lime tree. I can't say everything we've done has been successful. We're actually on our third lime tree. We managed to kill two, so fingers crossed. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. A lot of what we do have now has actually grown from a single seed. It's grown from something that's died, been buried, and, and come to life. In fact, the, the chili plant that we have that stands about this tall now was from a, a chili plant that I bought that was, you know, this little thing that I managed to kill. I don't know, too much water, not enough water, not enough sun. Maybe I needed to sing to it a bit more or something, but whatever, I killed it. But one of the chilies that was growing fell off. It, it got landed on the path and got blown in the wind. It got wedged between some rocks in another garden bed. It, it came apart, one of the seeds fell down and buried itself and started to grow. And the only reason I noticed it growing was that I was out there about to spray with some weed killer. I had the roundup ready and I was, what is that? Anyway, so I grabbed it and planted in a pot and like I said, we've got a chili bush about this tall. Amen. And some of the young adults will probably attest to the, the chili sauce I made is not too bad. But here's the thing, it died in one form, it was buried and it came back in another form. Yeah. 
That's what Paul is saying. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Even in creation, we have the evidence of the resurrection. And the first thing the resurrection addresses, like I said, is our anthropology. It addresses the value of human life. The doctrine of the resurrection affirms the dignity of humanity. The very fact that, that Christ took on human flesh, that he, um, he died and was buried, and he retained that flesh, he retained that human body. He didn't discard it when he went up to heaven, but he took that flesh with him. And that says something. That says something of um, humanity. That says something of the significance of human life. The inherent dignity affirmed in the resurrection. The way we think of human life changes because of the resurrection. Because Jesus didn't forego any aspect of, of the human experience, of human life. He didn't, he didn't forego any of that because it's significant. This morning you might not think that you're important. Maybe you think that your life is not of much worth or that it's of no value at all. But what I want to say this morning is your life is of value and Christ's resurrection affirms that. Because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, comes into the womb of a woman. He experiences every single part, every aspect of the human experience, of human development in its entirety, and thereby He sanctifies it. And He says to us that from the moment of conception, that is human life, and that is worth being honoured. The resurrection teaches us this, because Jesus takes that flesh back up with Him into heaven. And Paul expresses this further. He goes back to creation again, in the creation story. And it's interesting here because he goes back to the creation story, but kind of in reverse. Let me read it for you, verse 39 to 41. He says, Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. The splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun is, has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. There, here is this idea of splendor, or, or the glory of the human body, some translations. It's not the same as the glory of other things. He takes these examples of different bodies to show us that God, who is the creator, is accustomed to making many kinds of bodies, and each one suited to its own environment. Who knows that if you took a star and threw it in the ocean, it's not going to fare very well. And if you took a whale out of the ocean and threw it up in the sky, it's not going to last very long. <laughs> because each one, each one is suited to its own environment. In the same way, our physical bodies, perfect for this earthly existence, perfect for where we are now, will be useless in the perfection of God's kingdom. They must be transformed. They must be resurrected. So you see, in, uh, in the resurrection, we see that we are a special creation. We are made in the very image of God. We have a certain splendor, a certain glory. We are not monkeys who lost a little bit of hair, stood up a bit straighter, gained these opposable thumbs by some random chance. Actually, I remember when I did Bible college about 14 years ago, there was a couple of students there that described themselves as Christian evolutionists. They, they tried to merge the creation story, the creation narrative with evolutionary ideas. But what this passage says is it and what Paul does is he refutes that kind of thinking. 
because there's a certain splendour, a certain glory created in human life. We have an inherent dignity. We are a special creation. Who knows that when you're, you're driving down a highway, right, you expect to see roadkill, especially if you go out west or somewhere. You expect to see that a, a truck has gone past and there's a dead kangaroo or a fox or an animal or something like that, and you would just drive by that. You wouldn't even give that a second thought, at least I wouldn't. But if that was a human person, if that was someone, a, a human being who had died, you would not be able to just drive by that. You would be changed. Even if you had just heard the best joke ever and you were laughing your head off, the whole car was jovial, the moment you realised that on the side of the road someone had died, you would stop. Yeah. You couldn't keep going. Even if you didn't know that person, you didn't know what happened, you didn't even know if it was a him or a her, the moment you realised that someone had died, you would be changed. Because there is a glory associated with us. And the resurrection of Jesus affirms this. It is hope in the resurrection that changes our anthropology. It changes the way we think of people. It changes the way we think of humanity. It changes the way we think of human life. Because there is value in human life. All right, the second thing it addresses is our soteriology. I know a few big words, like I said this morning, but we're talking about our new life in Christ, the value of our new life. Let me read this, verse 42 to 44. He says, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So there's this sense that while there's a, a different glory associated with the human body compared to other bodies, compared to birds and animals and, and fish and suns and stars and things, there's also a sense that there's a different glory associated with the body as we have it now to our greater resurrected body that is to come. And then we get introduced to this idea of federal headship. I don't know if any of you have heard this term. It's a bit theological. But it's this idea that because of the sins of Adam, as our earthly head, he's our earthly head, under his federal headship, the sins of Adam are imputed to us. They are credited to us. The first man, Adam, became a living being and we bear his image. We sit under his headship. But then under Christ, we have a new federal head. Yeah. Let me read what Paul says, verse 45 to 49. He says, so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust, and the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so were those who were of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so were those who were of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So Jesus has risen we know that, that's what we're going to celebrate next week. And we too are going to be resurrected. Why? Because we have union with Christ. We have actual union with Christ. We are united in His death and His resurrection. We're talking about our soteriology. There is here this idea of federal headship. And the resurrection is real for us because we have union with Christ. We are not only uh, stand before God under... Jesus' federal head, but we're not only forgiven, but we're made righteous. 
Paul says he became a life-giving spirit. And so we, uh, we have both our sins forgiven as our sins are imputed to Christ and he takes them upon the cross, but also his righteousness is imputed to us, it is credited to us. In fact, death is the direct result of our federal headship under Adam. In Adam, all of us die. But in Christ, we have been made alive. And then the resurrection affirms this change from federal headship. We are now under Christ, that we may be forgiven, that we may experience eternal life, we may experience it right here, right now and forever. Because Jesus is not under that federal headship of Adam. He was born a man, with all the characteristics of human life, with everything we experience, but he was without sin. It's actually why the virgin birth matters. I know I've given you a few stats this morning, but here's another one. A recent Worldview survey determined that 45% of professing Christian teenagers believe that Jesus sinned during his earthly ministry. You know, some people say that the virgin birth, it doesn't really matter. As long as you love Jesus, as long as you love people, as long as you live a good life, that's all that matters. But if the virgin birth didn't happen, then Jesus stands condemned. He stands condemned under Adam as his federal head. But because of the virgin birth, he's not under that headship. That's why it matters. That's why it matters that Jesus did not sin. This doctrine matters, and why it's so important, it's why it's so important to read your Bible, to study it, to, to ask questions, to read commentaries, and not just take for granted what some people say. Especially if someone says God is like this or God is like that, we need to confirm it, we need to go back to his word. Otherwise, you might get caught up in this kind of rubbish, like what John Shelby Swong said. He doesn't believe in virgin births, they only occur in mythology. It's rubbish, and it matters. It matters that Jesus lived that perfect life of obedience to the law. The doctrine of the resurrection matters, and it matters on a practical level. Because Jesus was obedient to the law, he was obedient to God's law, he was actually righteous. He's the only one who can call himself actually righteous. And because he was actually righteous, he is empowered to um, impart his righteousness to us. Amen. And because he, he was obedient to the law, because he didn't sin, he's actually in himself able to take our sin from us and take it upon the cross. Yeah. We can actually impute our sin to him. And because of that, we can actually anticipate the resurrection of our bodies. It is hope of that resurrection that changes our soteriology. It changes the way we think of what Christ has done. It changes the way we think of these big things like justification and sanctification and adoption and glorification. It changes the way we think of our new life in Christ because it shows that there is value in the new life we have under Christ. All right, third movement. This is the last one. Last eight verses, 50 to 58. We're going to look at our missiology. We're looking at the value of the victorious life we have in Christ. Let me read it, 50 to 58. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must, must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, 
and immortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Paul here is answering the question that everyone everywhere will ask at some point in their life, how can I overcome that last enemy? How can I possibly escape death? And so we see in this last section that the resurrection changes our missiology. It changes the way we preach. It's why we preach. It changes uh, and shows us the reason why we meet together. We meet together to share in the victory of Jesus Christ over that last adversary. His victory over the last enemy. His victory over death. And last time I checked, the death rate was one per person. I, I didn't check this morning, but I don't think it's changed. Or to put it another way, life, it's available for a limited time only. It's restricted to one per person and subject to change without, without notice. Because there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to stop yourself from being overtaken by that enemy. But what this passage says, and what the resurrection affirms, is that there is a victory over this last enemy. That there is a victory over death that marks our transition from time to eternity. I think I might have shared this story before, but all my grandparents have passed away many years ago. But what's always stuck with me, what's always sort of sat with me, is how remarkably different their funerals were. You see, on my mum's side, on my mother's side, my grandparents weren't Christians. They weren't believers. They were lovely people. I loved them dearly. I still love them to this day. But they weren't believers. In fact, my granddad was adamant. He was determined that God would not be mentioned at his funeral. I'm pretty sure the, the minister actually snuck in a little bit there, but he was determined to not have God at his funeral at all. So at his funeral, all it was was sadness. There was no hope. It was just loss. It was just defeat. There was, nothing, there was no hope. It was just loss. But see, on my dad's side, my, well, my grandma's funeral was so very different. We had it in a church. The church was packed. It was so full that there were people in the car park that couldn't get in. There was no one wore black. Everyone was colourful. Everything was colourful. We sang songs. We worshipped God. We told stories. And the church just again and again erupted in laughter as these stories were being told. You see, it was, it, we mourned, of course. We, we mourned the loss of my grandma. We, we were mourning. But in the weirdest way, we mourned with gladness in our hearts. Yeah. We mourned with joy. I remember one particular story, which I only first heard at that funeral, about how my grandma, as a single mum, with four kids of her own, was also like a, a parent to um, the other people in the community. That there was always people in the house, that um, there was always people staying over and some kids would leave their surfboards there and things so that they could, they lived near the beach so they could go surfing um, after school and things. But there was always people in the house, it was always full. And so when Billy Graham was doing his crusades, she would get all these kids and get all these people and anyone she could gather and she would make them all come and sit down in front of the TV. 
and no one was allowed to move until they'd heard the entire message, until they'd heard everything Billy Graham had to say. You see, my grandma's death was marked with victory. Everything about that day, everything about her funeral was a celebration. It was a moment of triumph. She had lived that victorious life in Christ where she valued things of heaven more than things of this earth. And so at her funeral, we were just privileged enough to share this with her, share with her as she entered to that fulfilment of her resurrected life until she actually experienced victory over death. It's what this word says. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where a death is your victory, where a death is your sting. This is the climax of history. The last trumpet blasting, the sound of celebration and triumph. The trumpet sounds Christ's ultimate victory. Because this is the ultimate victory. Jesus' death and resurrection has broken the power of death and of sin and of the law. It is our ultimate hope. But here's the real cool thing. We can experience this victory as believers in Jesus right here, right now. We have this victory as a present reality. Of course, we don't know the full fruits of it yet. But Paul says this, Thanks be to God who gives us this victory in Jesus Christ. The resurrection assures that we have victory over death, victory over sin, victory over the law right now. The victorious life is the Christian who lives in that present reality. So it is hope in the resurrection that changes our missiology. We think of how we share the gospel. We think of what we say, how we say it, how we live it out. We think about our life of faith and of righteousness and of declaring the good news. Because that's the labour that's not in vain. It's proclaiming the victory we have in Christ because of his resurrection. So the resurrection affirms three things. It affirms the value of human life. It affirms the value of the new life we have in Christ. And it affirms that we have overcome this final enemy. In Christ, we experience a life of victory right now as a present guaranteed reality. I hope this morning you've got a bit of an answer at least to the question of how are the dead raised. Or you can at least see a bit of the importance of the resurrection, of why it matters. But I also want to leave you with three points from this last verse. And actually if the band wants to come up, wherever they are, we could sing that victory song would be good. So, three points of application. This last verse. Paul says, stand firm, let nothing move you. What this means, what it's saying is, be prepared. Prepare yourself and those around you to meet God as much as you can. Our labour in the resurrection life prepares us for His coming, for Jesus' return. And we must be ready. Because this is not our home. As awesome as this building is, this is not our home. Our home is in heaven. And the world will throw everything it can at you. We're singing in this song. But we need to stand firm. We need to hold, hold to the truth affirmed in the resurrection life. We need to endure those trials by living in this current reality of newness of life in Christ. Our labor is a labor of holiness because that labor is not in vain. It's what conforms us to the image of Christ. It's what brings us closer to Him. This needs to be the current reality in which we stand. Point two. 
always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. This is saying, live in such a way that the true, effectual gospel goes forth, because that is not in vain. We need to let our speech, our actions, proclaim the gospel message. We need to constantly be transformed. We need to renew our mind every day so that we understand the value of human life, the value of the victorious life we have in Christ, and proclaim His death and resurrection until He comes. Point three. Know your labour in the Lord is not in vain because it is a labour of hope. It is hope. It is hope in the resurrection. Our labour in this life gives us hope. It gives us a resurrection hope. The resurrection of Jesus assures us that we too will rise with Him. It affirms human life. It affirms new life in Jesus. It affirms victory even over death. This is our hope. The message is that Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death. He rose in victorious, confirming resurrection, has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He is there making intercessions for all of us and will one day come to judge the living and the dead and to gather us, his people, unto himself and to take us where he is. This is why the doctrine matters. This is why the resurrection matters. Let me pray this this morning. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for the fact that you came, that you did not count yourself and your place in heaven, but you came down to earth. You came down and, and were born as a human being, that you lived that perfect life that we could not. You lived a sinless life and you died the death that we deserved the death that we could never pay. I thank you because of that sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, that we have a righteousness imputed to us, that we can have a resurrection hope of eternity with you, and that we can experience that right now as a present reality. We thank you, Jesus, that you are with us now, that your Holy Spirit is a deposit of that, assuring us of that. And God, I just pray for each one here that they would see that the resurrection matters and that they have a new life in Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Come on, yeah. Can we stand together as we sing this, uh, declare this song, a closing song?
you know, because of the death and resurrection. It just wasn't something Jesus thought he'd do on one particular weekend at the end of the age of 33. It was actually for humanity. And you know, today, it's where our dignity, it's where our significance, it's where our value comes from, or who we are. It doesn't come from a world that's fading away. It comes from the reality of what Christ's done for us. You know, we have life today, a new life because of Christ. The old can be passed away, the new life in Christ. And then we know even after death, we can have eternal life, even now and for the future. What an incredible truth and message for us through Jesus Christ. I am so glad I can have a hope in that. And not some kind of belief system that someone just made up, but a reality of a God who created us for a purpose of truth. Father, we thank you for that truth today. Lord, it's the foundation of which we really lay our Christian belief in. And we praise you and honor you, Father, for that through Jesus. You've given us so much. We commit ourselves to you this week as we go into it. We need you, Lord, in every aspect of our life. And help us, Lord, to be lean into you and not lean away. We need you. Amen. Have a great day, church. Encourage someone today. Uh, don't forget, we're going to have a great time next weekend.